Thank you for tuning in to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. The following podcast is from our original show, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, which ran over 600 episodes from 2009 to 2022, and is exactly the kind of thing you can expect from us here, albeit with an expanded focus on all the best in horror, science fiction, and fantasy. There's a new free episode every month, or subscribe at patreon.com slash witchhousemedia to get new shows every week. Thanks again, and enjoy. HPpodcraft.com He doesn't know which of us I am these days, but they know one truth. You must own nothing but yourself. You must make your own life, live your own life, and die your own death. Or else you will die another's. The rice fields of Paragon 3 stretch for hundreds of miles like checkerboard tundras, a blue and brown mosaic under a burning sky of orange. In the evening, clouds whip like smoke, and the paddies rustle and murmur. A long line of men marched across the paddies the evening we escaped from Paragon 3. They were silent, armed, intent, a long rank of silhouetted statues looming against the smoking sky. That was the opening of Fondly Fahrenheit by Alfred Bester, and we're here to talk about it on HP Podcraft, and I am Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. We're here conducting strange studies of strange stories. I'm glad we're finally covering an author who is named in the same tradition as myself. My family, instead of junior or senior in numbers, you use comparatives. So, you know, he was the son of Jeff Best, and as such, his name is Alfred Bester. His son's Jimmy Bestest. Oh, right. The superlative. Yeah, good. Yeah, my dad was Richard uh, Fife. Oh, okay. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I didn't have any children because my ego's too fragile. Yeah, I cannot have a Fifeist. No. I did read about a festival in Windsor uh, on, on, on your side of uh-huh. the pond there. It's called Fifeist. And I don't know what they're trying to pull, but you're on my radar now, Windsor. <laughs> because as you know, you know this about me. First thing yeah. I do when I pull into a new town, grab the phone book, Terminator style. Anybody named Fifeist here? No? Lucky day. Lucky day for this town. <laughs> Sarah Pfeifist? Yes. <laughs> That's why I could relate to the killer robot themes in this story. Well, sure. I knew this would be right up your alley. Yeah. You know who else enjoys this story? Who? This week's reader, Connor McNamara. Hello. Great to have him back. Yes. Uh, when not reading or doing an office job, Connor does a little writing of his own. And if you want to check out his stuff, you can find it under his nom de plume of Fitzroy Lagan. What a great name, Fitzroy Lagan. Go read Fitzroy's work, and then you can drop Connor a note to let him know you liked it. And it'll be like you're already in a, in a writer's private circle because you know his secret identity. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And you're corresponding. It'll be a very cool thing to do. Well, thanks for reading for the show, Connor. Thank you so much. Alfred Bester, he's a new author for us. We've never covered any of his stories before. Yes, I was speculating about his family uh, based on my experience of the world. I don't know if Jimmy Bestis is really what his son's name was. Uh, (laughs) You you have some actual facts about this man. I do. He was born in Manhattan in 1913. He went to the University of Pennsylvania and then went to law school at Columbia. He married Raleigh Gulko, who was the actress that played Lois Lane on the Adventures of Superman radio show. Yeah, she might have even gone by Raleigh Bester, but... (laughs) Wow, I bet his father was like, he landed Lois Lane. He is bester. <laughs> don't have, don't, in fact, don't have children. You're the bestest. Oh, yeah. Well, they had a great marriage. Uh, they were together the, for her entire life. She died in 1984, and then he died soon after in 1987. I wonder if he ever had to go to Metropolis, Illinois with her. <laughs> Like every Lois Lane has to at some point. He is best known for his 1953 Hugo Award winning story, The Demolished Man, which is about a police procedural 
that has telepaths called espers or peepers as they're they're also <laughs> in there. I like peepers. Peepers yeah. is good. But espers is a term that's used in sci-fi all the time. And you know this is something I brought up before with Rachel because in science fiction the fact that psychic powers is kind of a trope is strange. Yeah. Yeah. I just accepted it. Like, oh yeah, people in science fiction, they'll have psychic powers. You know, in the far future, the human mind develops in a way that you're able to do psychic powers. But when I was watching Star Trek with Rachel, as I do, documented in our podcast, Rich Watches Star Trek, mm -hmm. when they announced that people had psychic powers, she goes, what? Why do they have psychic powers? And I thought to myself, I go, yeah, that's really bizarre. Because that's just a made up mm. thing that for some reason, the sci-fi community glommed onto and made it a real thing in their sci-fi yeah. worlds. There's no progression of technology that's going to make people become psychic. Like, there, there's no basis in any kind of science for that to work. Isn't teleportation kind of the same thing? I think people just want these types of superpowers, and they're confident that science is going to get us there somehow. But that's the thing in, in most science fiction. Science doesn't get people to the level of psychic powers. It's just either natural selection or some kind of genetic engineering that enhances people's already existing psionic powers. Yeah, that's true. Oh, like, is that Deanna Troy or something? Yeah, like, Baka psychic powers. Yeah. And it's really bizarre how everybody just is kind of cool with it. I was cool with it well, until my wife pointed it out to me that it's really bizarre. And it, it is. But see, I doesn't even when you point it out, I'm still like kind of cool. You, you said there's no thing that would lead to that scientifically. And I disagree with that. I mean, I could make the leap in a couple of steps speculatively. If you're doing everything now with voice control, I know that scientists are studying impulses in the brain right now and have been for quite some time to see what the physical and electrical responses are in that organ to certain thoughts that you have. And for all we know, there might be an electrochemical language there to be decoded. Yes. So, you know, maybe the way that a voice command may learn your accent or an intonation in your voice, a thought reading device would know on one complex set of electrical impulses, you have had the thought turn the light on or what have you. And once that language gets decoded, right, with machine learning, we could now, maybe we can watch or dramatize a person's thoughts, read those impulses, et cetera. So there's a way to get there, I think, in terms of there, telepathy. There, there is. Speculatively. Yes. And so it would a different alien race perhaps know the, have evolved with the ability to decode that language on an instinctual level, the way that spiders can spin webs that are amazingly strong, et cetera, things that are born out of instinct. But that's not what it is, though. Their explanation is... Everybody is psychic or has psychic potential, and some people are better at it than others. So that I can, I don't know, touch your mind from um, miles away. You're doing it right now. There's no, <laughs> there's no real scientific explanation for that. They say that there's like psi waves or there's some sort of, it, yeah. it's all just far out woo and not really based in any science. I don't know what woo is, though, actually. What are you talking woo about? Woo is like um, hocus pocus, mumbo jumbo stuff. Anyway, we've come to no uh, conclusion on that. <laughs> well, no, we have. We've come to a conclusion that we're on two sides of this, which is, you know, yeah. that's good. That, make, that makes for good radio, I say. <laughs> I like it. I accept it. I think it's fine. No, I like it, too. I have lots of cool sci-fi that I've read and watched, and I love Star Trek, and it's got psychic powers all over the place in that. But Maybe Rachel needs to mind her own business. <laughs> <laughs> So Baxter got his start in the April 1939 issue of Thrilling Wonder Stories with a story he wrote called The Broken Axiom. He got into writing for comics, DC Comics specifically, in 1942. He worked under good old Julius Schwartz. He wrote for Green Lantern. He also created Solomon Grundy, 
and he wrote the Green Lantern Oath that everybody knows. Oh. In brightest day and darkest night, no evil shall escape my sight. But those who worship evils might beware my power. Green Lantern's light. Are you still there? You didn't fly off into the space. No, I didn't. I, the slogan I recall much more is Solomon Grundy smash Superman. <laughs> That's what I like. It's good. He created Solomon Grundy. That's pretty awesome. We were talking about Solomon Grundy when we were talking about Swamp Thing stuff, yep. you know, because mm -hmm. he's a he's like a swamp creature guy. He is. Bester also went on to write a lot of novels. Uh, this story, Fondly Fahrenheit, came out in 1954, the August issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And this was made into a teleplay called Murder and the Android, which aired in 1959 as part of the Sunday Showcase series. I got this recommendation from an article on Hobbylark.com written by Chris Teldon called 10 Best Science Fiction Stories of All Time from the Golden Age to the Modern Era. This was number one. Wow. On that list. And this is what he wrote. Besides being a true personality and a novelist, Bester was a rare beast amongst Golden Age science fiction writers. He didn't just tell a great tale, he could write. Many Golden Age writers, including one of the best known, Robert Heinlein, were far better storytellers than they were writers. They had vision, but words, not so much. We've seen a little of that this month. Bester wrote with a deep understanding of the psychology of language. He knew English well enough to play with it, mangle it, do impossible things with it. With Fondly Fahrenheit, the writing doesn't just tell the story, it becomes the story, which is, I suspect, why Fondly Fahrenheit was not ultimately dismissed as just another science fiction horror story. Though the story's disturbing premise, that a servile android robot could turn on its human superiors and commit murder, was probably radical at the time. Without Bester's way with words, the story wouldn't have become the classic sci-fi story it is today. It's still cited as one of the best sci-fi stories ever. Finally, Fahrenheit isn't literary or prosy like Ray Bradbury's A Sound of Thunder. It's just beautifully written with a suspenseful mystery and a catchy song you won't forget, but will want to. <laughs> it's a story you have to keep reading. And the end, the end changes everything and makes it in my book the undisputed best of all time. But feel free to dispute it if you like. Warning, as it is about a serial killer. Finally, Fahrenheit is a fairly dark story and may not be suitable for kids, which uh, I think that warning goes for this podcast episode as yep. well. We won't dwell on the details, and neither does the story, but there is harm done to minors in here that we will be touching on. Yep. Uh, this story begins with a bunch of men out looking for a girl who is missing. They're on an alien world called Paragon 3, but it seems to have been colonized by humans for some time. Opening paragraphs are very important in these types of stories. This one is really a doozy. Just real quick to touch on it, and we can revisit it at the end, but it says, he doesn't know which of us I am these days, but they know one truth. So it's an identity crisis of some kind. Very confusing who's being talked about. Yes. And then you must own nothing but yourself. You must make your own life, live your own life, and die your own death or else you will die another's. Out of context, that's almost a meme or like a self-help pull quote, yeah. you know? What an opening paragraph compared to what we normally get. Yeah. There are over 100 men sweeping this area until they finally find the girl and she's dead. A little bit of whiplash there because we've been following protagonists who maybe, if they're not the good guys, they're at least the stand-ins for the reader a bit. So I was on the narrator's side, hope he escapes, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah. And then you find out what they're looking for and you go, oh. No. Now, she's in a rice field, and there's no water in her mouth, so they deduce that she was murdered, but she also has hand marks around her throat. She has blood and skin underneath her fingernails, but unlike her own blood, it has not clotted. And one of the men points out that android blood does not clot, and the other counters that it is impossible for an android to kill someone. It's against their programming. And they note that the temperature outside is 92.9 degrees Fahrenheit. There's some of that lack of imagination we've been seeing pop up throughout this month as well, though. You know, go ahead and let that cat monster inside. We've seen everything it can do. You know, these organisms are doubtless long dead. Go ahead and tap on it and see what happens. And, you know, androids can't do this. It's not in their programming. Now, we cut to a spaceship. It's called the Paragon Queen, and it's on its way to Megaster. Five. 
another planet. This guy, James Vandeleur, and his android. The android has the letters MA on its forehead, which stands for Multiple Aptitude, and it's currently valued at $57,000, but our guy Vandeleur is now down to only $1,600. He had to leave everything behind to escape with his android. He starts beating the android with a strap. He's angry at it. The android explains, I don't feel any pain, so you're just damaging your own property right now. Property, so key. And this $57,000, we don't know what the economy this place is, no. but I think that's a lot of money. Probably he's looking at 1950s bucks when he made up those figures. Sure. But it's definitely a ton of dough. It was really hard to figure out who was beating who and what was happening there. Because like I said, the pronouns keep changing. But eventually you get to the conclusion that the main character is the human and the robot. That the personality is bouncing between the two of them. Mm -hmm. This human is wealthy, like very well off. Vandalure, mm -hmm. he says, my house was worth 10,000. The land was worth five. There was furniture, cars, my paintings, etchings, my plane, and nothing to show for everything but $1,600. So he's really come down in the world. Yeah. We also find out that the android is not mechanical, but biological. It's made from synthetic tissue. And he asks the android why it killed the girl, but it doesn't know. The android has pat responses to a lot of things. It says, I must remind you that I'm worth $57,000. I must warn you that you are endangering valuable property. <laughs> You damn crazy machine, Vandalure shouted. So over and over, Vandalure asserts, I can't get rid of this machine because it's the only valuable thing I have. And the machine over and over asserts, I'm a thing of value, so you can't get rid of me. And that is just like a minefield psychologically. Yeah. I, you know, we don't need to go too far down that route, but the idea that this part of my personality is destructive, but it's also the only valuable thing about me mm -hmm. is such a cool thing to key into. Yep. We find out that that... This murder isn't the android's first transgression. It has also caused some mischief doing petty destruction and arson, but murder is its newest defect. The funny game that's being set up here, you don't know it's a game yet, is he he had his own private plane. Now he's in the second class cabin. They're on the run because of the escalating crimes. This downgrade in status just keeps happening with each crime. It's kind of funny. Vandalure gets the android to falsify his credentials and he changes his names to James Valentine. Now, some time has passed and Vandalure is on Megaster, the place that he's run away to. He is in a relationship with a woman named Dallas Brady. She has figured out that Valentine is Vandalure, but she doesn't care. Dallas is a space criminal, and you know that because she uses space criminal jargon. She says, I've known for a week. I haven't hollered copper, have I? <laughs> you want I should call the cops? <laughs> She's a woman of low morals. I get it from her patois. This was great, too. Valentine was a little too close to Vandalure. That wasn't smart, was it? And she says, I guess not. I'm not very smart. <laughs> <laughs> Just comes to it. She asks him why he doesn't sell the robot, and he says, well, I can't work. I got no real talents, and there's no competing with androids and robots for work. So she asks him why he doesn't just get the robot fixed. And he goes, look, the heat is on. People are looking for an MA robot and I can't go to them and go, yeah, my robot's killing people. Can you fix it? That's not going to work. <laughs> and also, if he got caught with this thing, he would likely get busted for being an accomplice to murder. For having not turned it in earlier. And she says, well, if you sell this thing, you could live off the money from that thing. He could. Or he could sell it, live off the money for a while until he gets a job. But the problem is it's not the living that he's accustomed to. Right. He says, I lived off my old man all my life. Damn him. He had to go bust just before he died. Left me the android and that's all. So it's not even like his strategy was, oh, I'll get this android and then that'll be a living for me. Yeah. 
This is just the one thing of value he inherited. And man, once again, sociologically, when you do a reading of that, you know, how much of society is messed up because you have people who are just trying to hang on to assets so they don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. He also does a little scapegoating that grows naturally out of that when he says, you know, I'm no good for nothing and, and you know, I can't compete with specialist androids and robots. He says, who can unless he's got a terrific talent for a particular job? You know, automation is terrifying and real and puts people out of work, yes. At the same time, the way that he says is, why is it a talent for a particular job? It's a uh, perspective of somebody like that who doesn't know how to do things. They think if somebody does, it's because they just kind of were born with an innate ability uh, yes. to do it. They didn't you know? work really hard and study. No, they just inherited that like people inherit things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, it's not work for them. If you're a good, uh, if you're good at something, well, then it's easy for you because you just got that. Mm-hmm. I've heard people use that language all the time. It drives me crazy. <laughs> now, Dallas says she'll keep her mouth shut about the whole thing if the android works for her for free for a little bit. And he takes the deal. On the first hot day of summer, the android's working in Dallas's shop and it's singing a tune. Oh, it's no feat to beat the heat. All reet, all reet. So jeet your seat. Be fleet, be fleet. Cool and discreet. Honey. That song was so creepy, I had to actually make a version of it. I, you know, I was going to say that it's better to not know what the song is and it makes it even creepier. Oh, but nice. At the end of this episode, you'll get to hear it. Be fleet. Ooh. The new single. Oh, wow. I'm so excited. Yeah. yeah, it's good. You just sang on it. You didn't even mean to. Nice. Oh, no. You provided the, the, the vocal for the robot. <laughs> oh, God. Hey, guys. You know, I like to trap folks. Now, she asked the android, because he's singing, are you happy? And he says, well, I can't feel emotions. And then it just goes over to the furnace. It picks up some molten gold, and then it comes up behind Dallas, and it pours it over her head, killing her. Just like yeah. the serious Tigarian, right? Like, did he get gold pulled yeah, on his head? Yeah, absolutely. It was right out of Game of Thrones. So, <laughs> And so I know what it looks like from having seen it depicted on the HBO program. Creepily, it sings its little song while it murders her. It notes that the temperature outside is 98.1 degrees Fahrenheit. Vandalur and the android have to escape yet again and move to a new planet, Lyra Alpha. This time he has to go on a third-class cabin. His circumstances are downgraded again when he gets to the planet, too. He's pretending to be a student. So now he's got to live that student starvation life. Yes. Now, Vandalur has beaten the robot about the head to bruise up his <laughs> M.A. mark so that people can't recognize him as that type of android. Word right. is out, of course, about this crazy robot. It's the android rampage in all of the press. Vandalur has befriended two students, Wanda and Jed, who have a theory about what's causing this android rampage, but they don't want to share it yet because they're hoping to publish a paper that will get them a lot of recognition and jumpstart their careers. Now, Wanda and Jed begin to suspect that Vandalur's android might be the mad android, so they decide they're (laughs) going to get their infrared camera and go take a picture of him at his work, which is at a a foundry, to see if it's got that M.A. under his bruise. He's really beat up right in that one place. Such a clumsy way to disguise that. (laughs) Yeah, it's really bad. By punching him. (laughs) But I love this. This is a very, like, horror movie victim way to act for these students to say, let's not alert anybody because we want the scoop. This could make our careers. You know, you have to bend over backwards to justify why they didn't tell anybody that they suspect this is the murdering robot. Let's go spy on him first. Well, it doesn't work out for them because when they go down to the furnace to take some pictures of the android, he sees them, he gets them, he kills them, and he stuffs them in the furnace. They note that the temperature is 100.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Things didn't go reet for them. (laughs) Not all reet. Vandalur and the android have to leave yet again. And this time Mm -hmm. he's able to take the research papers of Wanda and Jed, but he doesn't understand them. He can't make heads or tails of it. He's got to correlate contents. Sneer at the Lovecraft academics now, (laughs) will you? He's so useless. 
he can't do it. And that game continues where now this time when they travel, they're in steerage. They end up back on Earth and are dead broke. He tries to get the robot to rob this blind man, but the android can't go against his programming. Vandular says that you've done it plenty of times before. Now we need you to do it, but he won't budge. So Vandular goes to do it himself. He goes up to the guy and he says, sir, I've got to have some money. And the guy says, are you begging or stealing? And he says, I'm prepared for either. Now the blind man asks him, well, what do you really want? You want money, but what are you going to use that money for? And he's like, I, well, you know, I need food and a place to stay. And he goes, tell you what, my name is Blenheim. I'm a mathematician. I've got a place you can stay and a food you can eat. So come with me and I'll take care of you. Because Vandalure is able to offer this mathematician something in return, which is a new problem to solve. He found his Lovecraftian you know, protagonist yeah, right here. Yeah. This guy's a scholar. The narration keeps going from first person of the android to first person of Vandalure. So it's a little mm -hmm. confusing of who's who, but it's okay. We're kind of blurring these two people together. He asks Blenheim about the papers and maybe he can understand what, what's going on. He can correlate the contents. Looking at it, the mathematician realizes, oh, the common element here is the weather. Specifically, when the temperature is above 90 degrees Fahrenheit, the android malfunctions. So Vandalier is ecstatic about this, but now he is involuntarily saying, all right, all right, when he talks. Vandalier tells the android to get a weapon and the blind man wigs out and the android won't do it. He's not going to help him because the temperature is well below 90 degrees in here. So he's not going to break his programming. Blenheim starts screaming. He jumps on him. The android does bring him a gun because it's not directly doing anything. And then he takes the gun and he shoots the blind man kills him. This mandroid thing is kind of a Dracula, actually. He and the android go from place to place, getting other people to do what they need and then stealing their work. Mm. They're creating nothing, taking everything. Yeah. I even felt like there was a Google vibe to this a little bit, the way that that company, it's wealthy folks leveraging what was once a sort of democratizing algorithm. That initial burst of technology is sort of the android, but now Google goes from technology to technology and steal, well, I don't want to say steal it, but it aggressively acquires this stuff. Mm -hmm. As a company, it's about so much more than that original algorithm. And it's like, he's doing the same thing. He's bouncing from place to place, getting people to work for him, then knocking them out of the way and taking their work and absorbing it, kind of. There's just a lot of stuff going yeah, on in the store. There really is. Now, they escape to another part of London and go to a shop that says Nan Webb, psychometric consultant. And he says to her, he goes, I'm a student and he pays her a fee. She looks at the papers and Blenheim's notes, and he's like, okay, something's going on here. Sure, okay, temperature has something to do with his behavior, but what is going on exactly? You know, like, this isn't the only android mm -hmm. that has been in temperatures above 90 degrees. So, like, why is this happening? She says, synesthesia. Your research has uncovered the fact that the android most probably reacts to temperature stimulus above 90 degrees. Most probably there is enough endocrine response, probably a temperature linkage with the android adrenal surrogate. High temperature brings about a response of fear, anger, excitement, and violent physical activity, all within the province of the adrenal gland. So she explains that projection might be going on. It is the process of throwing out upon another the ideas or impulses that belong to oneself. The paranoid, for example, projects upon others his conflicts and disturbances in order to externalize them. He accuses directly or by implication other men of having the very sickness with which he is struggling with himself. <laughs> it is the danger of believing what is implied. If you live with a psychotic who projects his sickness upon you, there's a danger of falling into his psychotic pattern and becoming virtually psychotic yourself, as no doubt mm. is happening to you, Mr. Vandalure. She, wow. she sees through his lies, but what she's saying here <laughs> 
is that like, if you're with somebody, you're going to start picking up their traits or their psychosis. And because this robot is susceptible to becoming psychotic at high temperatures, when that happens, you're getting that as well, and you're acting psychotic. And we go, oh, that's why he pulled the gun and shot the blind man in the yeah. last thing. Now the robot's psychosis is rubbing off on him. And <laughs> she pulled a good trick when she said, oh, you want the student discount? What college are you in? And he made up a college name, and that's when she knew that he was a made-up person. Yeah. So she did a little sleuthing, which was rewarded by a quick death from the android. <laughs> <laughs> Or wait, Not actually, he shoots her, doesn't yeah, he? Him. He's the one who does it, right. Because once again, if somebody helps him out, I mean, I'm kind of on his side at this point. He's a terrible person, but I don't know. Maybe it's just because they're moving a lot, but it's fun. <laughs> it's like he and his psychotic robot are jumping from space to space. <laughs> Getting people to give them information. It's kind of like a natural born killers uh, sci-fi edition. Now, Vandalure and the android get in a car and they attempt to make their way to Scotland where it's always cool. So the android won't wake out. But on the way there, they are spotted and a helicopter gets above them. You know, they're in the spotlight driving down the freeway. It mm. says over the loudspeaker, attention android, you are in control of the vehicle. You are to stop at once. This is a state directive superseding all private commands. This actually works. The android goes, oh yeah, well, it's a state directive. So I've got to obey. That's part of my programming. And mm. Vandaler points out, he goes, well, how do you know that they're actually with the police? They could be lying. There's no proof. But anyway, the android's not really sure what to do with that. So he just pushes it out of the way and he drives the car. But then they crash. It catches right. fire. They crawl out of the car. Then the helicopter is shining its light on the, the scene of the, the wreck. But then the wreck explodes and it gives them some cover to escape. They're able to find a frozen pool and they break the ice and they crawl in the freezing water to hide. Mm -hmm. There's an, the explosion started a fire that continues to spread and men are out looking for these fugitives. He checks his gun because he's going to shoot these guys if they get too close, but his gun is gone. Somehow he lost it. As the fire is moving closer, shots go off, but it's his gun being consumed by the fire, igniting the, the gunpowder and the bullets. Right, which is to let us know that fire is moving. It's a cool way to show the motion of it. You know, they're in this cold pool, so the robot should be okay, but that approaching fire, it's going to unlock the android's murder powers. Mm -hmm. Now the fire passes over them and the android begins to scream, which is notifying them of their position. So he hits it to make it shut up, but it hits him back. There's a bit of a scuttle, and finally the thing moves out of the mud. It comes out near the wall of fire, and it just starts dancing. They shoot at it, and it keeps dancing until it is enveloped by the flames, the temperature of which are 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Vandalore didn't die. I got away. They missed him while they watched the android caper and die. But I don't know which of us he is these days. Projection, Wanda warned me. Projection, Nan Webb told him. If you live with a crazy man or a crazy machine long enough, I become crazy too. <laughs> but we know one truth. We know they were wrong. The new robot and Vandalore know that because the new robot started twitching too. Here on Cold Pollux, the robot is twitching and singing. No heat, but my fingers writhe. No heat, but it's taken the little tally girl off for a solitary walk. A cheap labor robot. A servo mechanism. All I could afford. But it's twitching and humming and walking alone with the child somewhere, and I can't find them. Cool and discreet honey in the dancing frost while thermometer registers 10 degrees fondly Fahrenheit. That's the end of the story. I thought that this is sort of science fiction psycho, sci-fi-co, a little bit. <laughs> because 
he's doing that thing where he's committing the crimes and blaming an, an external, you know, mother, what did you do? Blood, mother, blood. This is the same thing, except it's Android, robot, what did you do? It is that a bit. But the android is actually killing people. There was android blood underneath the girl's fingers. At first, the android was killing people. But we've learned quickly that his psychosis was, or maybe the android was picking up some some kind of derangement that he had and then was manifesting it when it got above a certain temperature. But then it was kind of feedback looping onto him and he was just openly shooting people. He was the cause of this whole thing. That is a good clarification to make, by the way, because I wouldn't want anybody to think that um, he's dressing up like the robot. <laughs> <laughs> Although that would be an amazing plot, too. <laughs> oh, that would be if good. you were dressing up like your own robot to, to go out and do weird stuff. But um, yeah, there's a grain of truth in this psychology, though, that's neat, too, because I'll notice sometimes when I do something accidental or I'm very mad about, I'll slip into the third person. You know, there's things I'll go, oh, I'm sorry I did that. And then you'll drop something. I'll go fight for you, idiot. Why did I suddenly make that division? Yeah. What's the difference between me and that person I just cursed out? I feel like there is a slope that gets one towards doing that more and more. I do that as well. Like, oh, you idiot. Why are you so stupid? You did that stupid thing. You know, who am I yelling at? Right. (laughs) It was me. I did it. Who are you? You're yelling at. And and why did you slip it? Why sometimes is it that? But then other times you're like, oh, I'm such a sucker. Why did I fall for that? Now, so there's allowable things that are in character for you. And then sometimes you'll do something that you feel is out of character. And... And it's weird that it would be something like, you know, dropping something because, well, that's in nobody's character. That's just an accident. Irrational mental distancing is happening oh, in yeah. there. <laughs> How is this going to get complicated when we start having beings that will literally obey any order we give them? <sighs> wow. That's fascinating to me. That's crazy stuff. And that is why sci-fi is so much fun. And then I have to circle back around to that opening paragraph when he says, you must own nothing but yourself. You must make your own life, live your own life, die your own death, or else you will die another's. There's a lot of ideas in there around scapegoating, personal responsibility, Mm -hmm. status and ownership, steals individuality either way, as long as it's not. Like in any relationship, you're owned by what you own. Yeah. But also, if you look at it from the way of if you're a soldier in an army... You're being dictated by your commanders, by your government, by your whomever. Yep. You're giving up your responsibility in a way to take orders and to, to do these things. It, well, not just a soldier, any job that you take, you're going to, you know, I'm going to work for this corporation. I'm going to do this business. So many people just give up their self and they don't stick to their morals or their ethics, and then they just do whatever they got to do. And and that's another part of it. Right. I mean, when you have a politician who makes a bad decision and says, well, my constituency wanted that. (laughs) Maybe they did. Yeah. But what did you get? Didn't you get elected for having your own mind? And so then it gets complicated because you are responsible to others. Mm -hmm. But are you a creature of theirs? And it's a struggle that we're all on some spectrum of because, you know, you've got the military where you are, hey, I'm just here to follow orders and I'm a tool, I'm an instrument. But then you also have, say, you go to your job and as you said, you know, you're your boss's creature all day and then you come home and now your children are your creature. You do this, you do that, I want you that. And, And you know what, while you're at it, fulfill my dreams that I didn't get it fulfilled. <laughs> you, you now have that part of my life on you too. Bester's trying with that one sentence in there to say, hey, this is couched in this kind of rollicking, psychotic, killer robot story. But at the end of the day, remember, you better not own anything but yourself. Make your own life and die your own death. Because if you don't, you will just be, you're not the protagonist in your own life, your character in somebody else's book. What a weird message to take out of this crazy story, yeah. you know? It's a great story. Awesome stuff. Really awesome stuff. Yeah. 
And uh, that's going to conclude our coverage of it. I want to thank Connor McNamara for reading like a champion. Go check out his stuff under his nom de plume of Fitzroy Lagan. I would like to thank some patrons for supporting us, and hopefully you're, you enjoy these wackadoo science fiction stories. I'm going to start by thanking David Alloy. I'd like to thank David Gutierrez. I'd like to thank Ian Tompkins. Thank you, Mason Starr. Dean Goldsmith, thank you so much. Leslie Adams, thank you. Lucia Sandin, thank you. Nancy Bishop, thank you. Garrett Lakata Portentoso, thank you so much. And lastly, I'd like to thank Michael Vakian. We're going to be back at you next month with more strange studies of strange stories. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you're listening to HPPodcraft.com. Screams, who let the screams? Who let the screams? Who let the screams? Who let the screams?